the Evolve to Succeed podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability, and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Hello, I am Warren Munson, founder of Inspire and Evolve, and my guest on this week's Evolve to Succeed podcast is Alex Shepard, co-founder of Kids Love Nature Kindergartens and also owner of four Montessori schools with his wife, Helen. Among other things, in this episode, we'll hear about Alex's passion for early years education. As science tells us that 90% of brain development in the human being happens between zero and six. So it's really exciting to be a part of that. How he's building relationships in China. We're looking to sort of do some work where we support their teachers and head teachers in the educational approach so we, they can learn some of our values and integrate it into their, into their practice. How Alex came to build a nursery school inside a zoo. And I said to him, so I said, James, you don't know me. I'm just somebody who would really, really like to talk to you about putting a nursery school in your zoo. And finally, why retirement isn't part of his plans. I certainly don't think of myself who's somebody going to sort of retire at 65, 67, whatever it is, and then I'm going to have this kind of retirement period. I see myself as, you know, learning something until the day that I'm not going to wake up to learn anything else. Welcome, Alex Shepard. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you here. So, Alex is a co-founder of Kids Love Nature and also uh, runs a number of uh, Montessori uh, nurseries uh, with his wife. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I've known Alex uh, for probably 10 years now. We've kind of bumped into each other, had a few conversations. And the reason I'm really pleased to have Alex on the podcast is actually I think Alex has got a really interesting story about how he's evolved as an individual, but has a really um, huge and significant uh, view on education and as education and development is a big part of Evolve yeah. it's going to be interesting to speak to Alex and hear more. So Alex do you want to give us a, just a quick resume of your background? Yeah um, so I've been working in early years for about 19 years so I started as a practitioner and really with the idea always that I wanted to have my own business and open my own school and I sort of realised that when I was about 27, so we opened our first Montessori school oh, okay. there. And from that point, obviously, we kind of grew the Montessori nursery. So my wife and I opened three. She's a qualified teacher as well. Okay. And that was really the beginning. It was like we wanted to make a difference to the early years. I mean, zero to six is our passion. We've got four children ourselves. And I think we always knew that the early years was a really dynamic educational sector to be in because there was a lot of freedom to how you educate children and how you can develop them. But also, as science tells us, that 90% of brain development in the human being happens between zero and six. So it's really exciting to be a part of that. That's a scary, as an engaging and exciting, but at the same time, scary statistic. It is. It really is. But, um, and I think what's been so inspiring on our journey is kind of finding people who really believe that we are making a huge difference not just to these sort of formative years but you know we're making a big difference to the resilience of children who will have that resilience or not going into adulthood so um 
it's, it's, it's a fantastic set to be in and, and I, you know, I love my job as much as I did when I started. Brilliant. And so 27 to be yeah. you know, with your wife, kind of heading up mm. some, you know, starting to build a group of preschools yeah. and nurseries. That, it's quite young to be doing that. What it, were those challenges in those early years? I think challenges were financial. I mean, it was back in the day where the banks would lend money more freely. Yeah. And, you know, we, you know, we took out big loans. And we were lucky enough to get hold of a freehold. But, um, you know, we had a a one-year-old, you know, a lot of debt. And it was a psychological challenge of being able to handle that whilst trying to really kind of prove not only to yourself, but to the community that you had, um, you you know, your vision for what early years education was something that people would want to come and receive for their children. So it was balancing the sort of the finances and driving the success of a of a seedling business. Right, and I'm right in thinking you lived above yeah. that original... And we still do. And you yeah, still we, do We still do, day. yeah, wow. we still do. Yeah, we're still in Bournemouth, we're still above it. Um, and, yeah, with the seven schools, so I've got four children upstairs and 30-odd children <laughs> downstairs, <laughs> so surrounded by them. And a number of others. That absolutely, you know, absolutely. Over a wide kind of yeah. geographical spread. Mm. That, in itself, that's really interesting because... Do you find you can have that separation between personal and business, living above, you know, I think the that, business? I think that actually was a psychological shift to say yes to that question, which is, yes, I have. But it wasn't a physical one, it was a psychological one. I had to be able to make the distinction between work and business myself and work on that. Yeah. Um, and once I'd done that, when I, once I realised... Um, that I, you know, that I could, and the benefits of being there, and the community that I was surrounded by, um, then it's something that I've learned to love. Um, but uh, there were times when the children were young, then you, when your whole life's on show, and and particularly when you're on show on a business that is, you know, when your children are maybe playing up as you're trying to get them in the car, yeah. and all the parents <laughs> are coming in. So that never happens. That never, <laughs> it, no, it never happens. So, um, so yeah, there was that, but and I think eventually I just realised. Um, to me, you know, it was the kind of letting go. I mean, it was letting go of it, and then realizing how fortunate I am to have all these people around me, and 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 how much I love my job. And once that happened, then I was very happy, you know, yeah. where I am. But there must have been a time when you were, you know, with your wife, you mm. living above. Mm. You talked about you're mm. always on show. Mm. But did, were you always good as a couple, trying to get that separation between business and personal? Yeah, I think so. Relationship in. Yeah, I mean, my wife and I are. are are really close and we have a great relationship and you know we are friends in that way and we're very open so we we discuss a lot about where maybe the business element of the day is coming into the family home maybe not just as in regards to teachers knocking on the door and asking whether they can borrow a pot or a pan because yeah. something you know taking a microwave because the other one's broken and they're trying to heat something up um so there's those kind of things but then also making sure that we um we actually, we actually do separate the sort of business talk from the personal life. But I think ultimately for me is, I've kind of come to realize that if you love both, then it's not a problem. Mm. And I really do love both. So actually talking about things that are going on is, isn't necessarily work. Yeah. You know. And I think that there's that myth, isn't there? We can touch on it now, but I think between this work life balance thing. Mm. And I think the true word is balance. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that think work life balance is when I'm at work, 
I mean, I'm now not at work. And actually, in my view, in my experience, true balance comes when you equate the two and you can be present in the moment, whether you're sat there with your wife and kids having dinner, or whether you're sat here now recording a podcast. Yeah. It's about being present in the moment. And it, Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of it's the sort of psychological balance of the person. Yeah. So I'm sure you're aware that some people come in and bring their problems from home into work. Yeah. So the psychological problems are actually home-based. Yeah. Or other people are taking their work problems back and then yeah. that is the problem in the home life. So for me, I think what I've come to come to realise is it's irrelevant whether the whether it's work or home life, it's just about whether I'm feeling psychologically and emotionally um, clear. Yeah. And, and if I'm in that space, then nothing can be a problem. You have problems every day, yeah. but they don't become problems anymore. They're just something you haven't fixed yet. <laughs> okay, I like that philosophy. Yeah. So you talked about that original ambition being you know, changing or seeing the importance of that early year, yeah. early years education. But fundamentally, from a business perspective, what was the original ambition of the business? The business was to grow nursery schools that were there to make the best possible start for early years education and build a reputation where people say those schools really made a difference. So. I think if I had been chasing just the business, mm. there would have been far more lucrative, sort of less um, um, onerous jobs that I could have achieved the financial success that one might want from opening a business. But what really was the driver was like, can we really position ourselves as doing great work? Because if, if it becomes great work, then I'm going to want to carry on doing it. and. As I said, I've been doing this for nearly 20 years and I don't even feel like I've even got going yet. Wow. So, um, yeah, I think that's the difference for me is making sure that the business aligned with what I wanted my life to be about. Yeah. You know, what, do I, what am I here? What, what am I doing it for? You know, I'm not a sort of go in and take a paycheck for nine to five. It's not what I'm here for. And actually, I, I can make a difference and I'm passionate about those young children and that's what I want to, to do. And that's what sort of drove me to make the decisions we've done because our business choices haven't been the easiest. We haven't chosen the easiest places to open kindergartens or even the easiest approach. Yeah, um, I would like to touch on that in a moment. Yeah. Um, but actually your sector's had some challenges in that 20 years as well, hasn't it? And it's changed dramatically. I mean, the change is just insane. I yeah. mean, I suppose in a corporate world, you wouldn't say that the change is dramatic, but from where it was when I came into it to where it is now, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, you know, we have touchscreens for children coming in, we have live data feeds, I've got virtual desktops and I've got, you know, I've got a bank of um, storage in Ireland where all of the children's data is locked down. So, you know, if a laptop was to go missing, there's nothing, everything's encrypted, there's nothing actually on the laptop. Yeah. You know, all of the, I've got consultant HR, I've got consultant wellbeing, life coaches, yeah. I've, you know, the whole area of the business, we've got software for taking care of all the accounts. Whereas, yeah. you know, when I started, I was just banging away on stage 50 and yeah. doing all you know, it's, yeah. it's a different world. And there's but a lot more paper records and so technology's changed. Technology's changed. The view of education, do you think that's changed? Uh, yes, but I think, I think the biggest tr trouble in our sector, if I'm honest, is the the single ownership. So if you took the preschools and the single ownership nursery schools, 
the level of professionalism that's required for them requires a team of people with different skill sets than one individual nursery owner. Whereas when I started, I could do everything. Okay. I generally think if you were to put me back at the beginning again now, with the requirements from a statutory perspective that's on me, it would be very difficult. The size of the company where we have the seven nurseries allows me to have a finance manager. It allows me to be able to outsource my HR and have the wellbeing coaches and be able to pay for virtual desktops and all of that and have an FD consultant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But that's not a luxury a small business would have because, you know, so I I think that's it. In relation to the education side, um, it's interesting because I think actually when we, I came into the sector, we were very cutting edge and I think the sector is caught up okay. and I think what's happened now is we're pushing it out further. But I don't necessarily think that, um, uh, I don't necessarily think that the approach has necessarily evolved as much as the, the business. Yeah. Um, but the approach has evolved, and I think the biggest shift for me is the idea of sort of emotional well-being and resilience. And that's a sector-wide shift. Um, in early years education, when you think of preschools and kindergartens, it was somewhere that your child was cared for, where you went to work. Yeah. If they learned how to write their name and count to 20 and would, could tie their shoelaces and eat well, yeah. and da 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 you know, That's a fantastic you foundation. You go, school, yeah. you go into school and they've done well. Um, now I think we're seeing at the, at the output from, say, university level, there's a lot of people who have mental health issues. There's a yeah. lot of people who are struggling with their own resilience. Yeah. We're going into a completely different marketplace and it goes to work. Yeah. You're not guaranteed a job anymore. And right the way from, from quite a young age, right the way through mental health has become a big issue. And we've been focusing on emotional resilience, emotional well-being and resilience for you know 10 years now. But it's now common language, but it, whereas it wasn't when we started okay. talking about it. But it's nothing, I think it's just something that's going to become more and more important. Wow. Um, so, yeah, there, there has been shifts, but the biggest shifts has been on the structural business element. Okay. It's just it's in, yeah. totally so you different. you can do what you, you did now, it would be oh, far no. more difficult. Oh, yeah. And is there new entrants to your market? Or is those barriers to entry now so high that I think the, the market's consolidating? I think the barriers to entrance is high because... Um, as you know, any parent will know that nursery schools fees are not cheap. You know, it's, it's expensive to send your child to a day nursery. But when I look at the qualifications that I'm now required to have and the level of ratios that I'm required to have and the premises that I'm there, and the statutory regulations and how I keep those premises and the investment I have to put on those premises, it's tenfold what it was when you could send your child to a little preschool where they would bring out some plastic toys and pack it all away. Yeah. And it's, it's a different world. I, I laugh because uh, when I grew up, my mum ran the lo- local kind of play school mm. and that was the equivalent then and it was in the community hall and there was a little cupboard and I used to go with her on a Sunday and remember Sunday evenings would be where she would be opening on the Monday so they'd access and we'd all go and pour out the little tables yeah. and it was the back of plastic toys and that was it really. She'd put some activities together yeah. but that's effectively like you say it was child care yeah. not child education. Now, if you take the Kids Love Nature, we have a site in Marwa Zoo and we pay for an, a zoologist with an MA in, to come and take the children out and teach them about conservation and animal welfare. 
and at Avon Heath, we have qualified rangers who take children out. We have a resident gardener at our Litchit site. At our kindergarten in Limington, we have pigs, we have resident artists coming in and things like that. So it's a different world. Yeah. Um, it's a better world. I mean, I think the experiences that children are having, I, you know, I think they're so, so vital, as I said, not just because I'm passionate about the sector, but science, when you say that 90% of the brain development happens in that period, you know, we've got to make those experiences as rich and as valued as possible. And, you know, there is evidence building that, you know, children's resilience and emotional resilience is kind of set quite young. Mm. So, you know, you're here with your successful business. When did you learn that resilience? And that's not a question, but it's a question yeah. for you. Is when did that resilience come in? Well, when did somebody, when they do struggle at whatever age, when did it when did it go? <laughs> you know, and, and we're all about making children feel like they've got the resilience to deal what, with what's thrown at them. It's really interesting because some of the very, you know, Evolve has developed these 30 coaching and development workbooks, but some of the early workbooks that we developed were with Becky Holston, mm. who is that kind of stress resilience expert. And we developed a managing and understanding rather than managing, but understanding stress workbook. And a, resilience workbook very early on because we agree that if you're going to be successful both in life it's the personal and the business and some of those those true skills that you need are is that resilience piece and understanding you know how do you show up when actually you are stressed and what are your releases and and trying to control that mechanism and that those different nervous systems so i absolutely agree with you alex but a lot of people are coming to that late in life. So if you're doing that early in the child's education process, it must be invaluable. I think it is. I mean, I think, you know, the human brain and the human, the human being is like a supercomputer, isn't it? I mean, we've got this amazing cognitive ability. We've got this amazing ability to create and fantastic emotional range. But how often does those emotions and thoughts work against us? You know, it's, it's quite scary that sometimes you know, most of us aren't being stabbed. No one's trying to kill us or do anything yeah. with us, but then people can still suffer and they can truly suffer. Like, and you know, life can be really difficult. And that obviously that can be external factors that make things more difficult for ourselves. But sometimes it's not, sometimes it's just that we don't know how to cope with our own capabilities, be it our own thought processes that are running riot or our own emotions that are running riot. And I can say that because I know what that feels like from being in different yeah. parts of my business at different stages when, you know, I've felt the pressure. Yeah, so you're a different individual now to the one that I met 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm saying that in the right way. <laughs> and you've, you've got, clearly got a better understanding of yourself. When and how did that come about? I think everybody kind of has to have a moment where they realise that they need to really look in the mirror and stop believing themselves. I mean, you know, stop believing what they stop believing what they think and stop believing what they're telling themselves. Yeah. Because I think we're the, we're quite good at conning ourselves into believing we're better than we are. We're and not seeing the bits of ourselves that other people can see, and um, you know allowing our ego to drive, uh, you know, drive ourselves forward the whole time. And it's a great fight and flight response. You know, you yeah. just keep going, just keep going. It's the dream. 
But I think I had that moment when I kind of really did realise that actually, no, you, you, you've got this all upside down and back to front and just don't believe it because it's not true. And you're not as great as what you think you are and you're not as clear and you are making mistakes and you need to have a little bit of a reality check. How did that really feel? Terrible. Absolutely yeah. terrible. And it wasn't that there was anything particularly going wrong at the time, but it was really the reason that I was kidding excuse my language, bullshitting myself, yeah. you know? And I think it was a moment when I had to say, no, come on, If you do you really believe what you're thinking and saying and feeling? And, and I kind of had that moment when I didn't. So then I kind of had to work about, well, if that's not true, then who, who and what and how, what do you believe? Yeah. You go quite deep, quite quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm not saying that this is some deep trip, but it's it was a moment where I actually realised that I'd been kidding myself and I was trying to believe my own hype yeah. And for most people in business, you know, you know, marketing, whatever, you kind of try and sell yourself, don't you? Try and, yeah. I go in at 26 and try and get the bank to end me a lot of money. And I was completely out of my depth, but I was trying to sell myself. But then I think the reality came maybe in my early 30s when I realised that I was, I had to stop and not believe everything I thought and, and yeah. felt because it wasn't always accurate. And then... And I, I resonate with that, you know, I've talked quite openly about my kind of value of despair, that believing us as a business and me as an individual, believing in our own hype and mm. that rejuvenation that has to take place from there. Mm. In terms of your own story of rejuvenation, yeah. you know, how did you, you know, for the, the people listening and, and are thinking they're feeling in that place of despair and wanting that greater understanding, what were your next steps? I realised that I had to do the work away from the business. So actually that to make sure that I didn't muddy the two. Yeah. So this wasn't then, but my own journey didn't become everybody's journey because it wasn't everybody who needed to go through this, it was just me. Yeah. So I had to make sure that I separated the two. And then I had to find people that I trust who were, had, I think the best teachers is someone can understand the perspective that you're looking from when you feel in that place but then also looking from the other side when they've worked it out for themselves. So I surrounded myself with mentors and people who could give me the guidance and point at something. You know, one of the things I've learned in anything in early years for the working with the children is you can't really teach a child. All you really do is point at something and wait for them to discover it for themselves. And I strongly believe in that. And I think what I did was find people that pointed at something and then allowed me the time to work it out for myself. And I think that's what happened. And, and when I say happened, it wasn't like an overnight moment. This is, and it hasn't finished. Yeah, it's <laughs> but a journey. It's now, a journey, 100%, but it's like I am more aware of it. And But there was a big shift. And then I kind of spent over two or three years, I just found that I had more clarity and I was able to check. And, you know, and maybe age comes into it as well. I mean, I'm talking early 30s, I'm 41 now, so, um, you know, things change in that way as well but um but it, it there was definitely a shift there was definitely a shift and it, but it was something that I had to consciously make a choice to work at like learning a second language it, you know I don't think for most people it just happens yeah. I think you've got to be actively choosing it um, some people get lucky I suppose but I wasn't one of those <laughs> yeah. so going back to the business I think one of the things that really intrigues me and interests me about the business is your passion for education means that 
you know, you're running um, a, a nature preschool, preschool, nature, mm-hmm. you know, kids love nature in school at Marwell Zoo. Okay. Talk about that opportunity in a bit, but you're also running uh, one in one of the most deprived areas in Bournemouth. Yeah. And that's quite a diverse kind of portfolio. Yeah. Whereas most people in this set of business kind of do the, um, I'll call it the rubber stamp, kind of model like that works. So I'll go and find somewhere the same demographic and I'll go and do that over there. When you look at your seven schools, they're completely different in completely different areas. Yeah. And like I say, we go from my very deprived location to Marwell Zoo. You know, the the twain should meet. Absolutely, yeah. How do you find the ability to do that and manage that diverse range? I think, firstly, the most firstly the point is why and I think the why reason is that I believe that the capacity in children is in every child the capacity for to have success and I'm not quantifying what success is but is in every child and I think there is a there is a suggestion or a feeling that you know success is something that is in the family in certain class of class or with money and I've always kind of really struggled with that I mean my own personal story is that I was dyslexic and I had to keep that to myself because in the 80s with dyslexia you were just written off as thick and you know and I you know I had a middle class background my family had a good good parents and and the school I went to was pretty pretty tough outside Portsmouth 2000 pupils and it was you know it was pretty lively I got through it because I had really good emotional support from my parents and I I was good at sport and I had half a brain. But some of the children there who really, really struggled through no fault of their own because they didn't have the support network I had. And, I, you know, I've talked about this a lot, but it, it, it really affected me because I just saw that these children were suffering for no fault of their own. And they just didn't have the network that I had. So... When I thought about Townsend, I opened up my first nursery and then I opened a second up here in Ashley Cross. And, you know, we were doing great things and I, and I wanted to show, not only to myself, but primarily to myself, but to everybody around that it's children of this age can succeed whatever the environment and everything. And, and actually the community in Bournemouth where I have my third nursery is fantastic. There is a really, really positive supported unit. They're, you know, they're fantastic work going on there, fantastic families. Children are amazing. They have um, environmental issues that kind of make things harder for them. But, um, they, but I think everybody has the opportunity to succeed. And that was really what I wanted to show that, you know, it is education at this stage is is so vital for everybody and no one should be excluded from it. But looking at it in relation to Marwell, that kind of came out about with the idea of, I came to my wife and said, you know, if you were four or three and you wanted to be, where would be the best place to go to nursery? Where, where? And we're sat on the sofa having a gin and tonic and she just went, Marwell Zoo. You've got to put a nursery in Marwell Zoo. I was like, I'll tell you what, that would be epic, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it would seriously be epic. And most nurseries have a guinea pig and yeah. you know, this nursery can have a tiger. You know, it's pretty cool. 
Um, so a different way of reading when Tiger came to two. Absolutely, one hundred percent. So, and that was it. And but getting that was not as easy as it sounded. But that was the moment. So we've always kind of took it from the perspective of what would the children, what would the child need, what would the child want. And I think if, from our from our business, if we keep that in our mindset, then you know, yes, we've got to do the business bit well. Um, but we can. That's always got to drive it because that's what people who work with us come for. Yeah. You know, that's why they're there. Absolutely. 100%. And that's why the parents come on, you know, I, it's not everything because, but, you know, I've got all, the, all our nurseries, everyone that's been inspected has got an outstanding Ofsted, you know, and that's not easy. Um, but that's because we've got great people and, you know, clear vision. Brilliant. So I'm going to get back to my world too. Mm. Um, and, and just reflect on it. So you sat on the sofa. Mm-hmm. Wow. Where would be a great place? Zoo. Ah, oh, Marvel Zoo. What drive and ambition did it then take to make that happen? A lot, because um, as you probably know far better than me, that um, you know, most biz- good business ideas kind of fall at the first hard- hurdle. Otherwise, because it's just too difficult, or you person who persisting hasn't got the resilience to get there. Um, so my first approach was to the business um, team at Marwell, saying I would like to open a nursery. I was very polite and tried to get in my little pitch that I'd already had some, so I wasn't a complete unknown entity. And that, complete yeah, <laughs> and they just said, when I kind of explained I wanted to put a nursery in the zoo and not just come and visit from a nursery, they were like, no, go and get a ticket and visit it like everybody else. Um, go get a ticket. Yeah, so, you know, come and see us on a, on a weekday. Um, but I kind of tried a couple of times, didn't get anywhere, and then eventually I found the set of old accounts for Marwell Zoo online and it had a Winchester telephone number on it not the 0800 number which is for so I phoned and I, I, I and the lady picked up the phone and, um, and I said hi it's Alex phoning for James and he was he is still the chief exec and she said oh he's not he, he's he's busy at the moment he's having an interview I think she said so I said oh he, he may have lost my number can I give it to you and she said yes and 20 minutes later he phoned back and he said, he said Alex it's James and I and I said to him, so I said, James, you don't know me. I'm just somebody who would really, really like to talk to you about putting a nursery school in your zoo. And I was waiting on the other end of the phone. <laughs> and luckily for me that he said, well, you, we, you better come and have a conversation with me. And that one conversation became 100 conversations. And it took us three years. And we had to do all the due diligence and everything else. And, um, and then we managed to open up uh, wow. nursery. So, you know, it was one small opening and then as I said that was that was just the beginning because then we had the whole time they had to come and see us and blah, blah, blah. everything else happened from there but um but yeah but I think it was resilience not to get not to take the knock back you know yeah, absolutely that perseverance yeah that, that commitment yeah. and then that bold step just to do something yeah. different to and try and make it happen and I think when we sat in front of the board and spoke to them at Marwell they kind of really got what we were about and it aligned with their values because the work that they do you know Marwell doesn't get enough credit actually I think I mean it's a fantastic zoological park but the conservation work they work they do globally is incredible you know they've got um, breeds of animal in the zoo that are extinct and they're actually reintroducing them and you know the director there flies all over the world and China and Africa and does a lot of work on a conservation level giving advice and support so the local communities can actually develop their own policy rather than it being dictated to by us the West 
Um, and, you know, they're, they're a fantastic organisation and they now can say that they do, you know, MA standard degrees in zoology. And they also have children coming in at three or four learning about conservation and wildlife. Yeah. And they do everything in between. So, you know, we've, we're the last, the beginning bit of the puzzle right up to an MA qualification. It's going to be amazing, I'm sure, in 15 years' time to yeah. see any of those children that went to that nursery in Marble Zoo that then go and get their degree Absolutely. in zoology and, and that fuels their passion for life. I'm we sure to, it's going to happen. Well, fingers crossed. But, um, yeah. yeah, but it, it's, a, it's a fantastic place to be. They're an amazing organisation. So clearly, you know, a, a, you know, significant success and, you know, feet firmly on the ground, but, you know, seven preschools and, you know, in some weird and wonderful locations as well. But what next, Alex? What, what drives you now and what's the next kind of ambition? I think at this point, if you ask me today, the, the vision is actually we've got clarity, we've got vision. We need to make sure that we refine the structures because just our internal processes need to be refined. And we then can then look at how we expand. We've written down our approach. We do university lectures. We have people visiting us from the States and Canada and other places. <laughs> And we're starting to do a little bit of consultancy in China. So right now it's making sure that our, our nurseries are, are back of house, the sort of processes are as, as slick as we can get them because there's more and more of us kind of paperwork being thrown at our sector. So we have to make sure we do that. We're working on the well-being as you are with Evolve. We're putting a lot of emphasis on the well-being. And, and then from that point then we hope that we will have a voice in our sector that we'll um, be able to take out. So, yeah, so China's the sort of one we're trying at the moment. It's just a small market. A small market, a difficult one, but um, but it's been interesting. I've so learned a lot. Can you can we explore that a little bit further? Yeah, so what's the consultancy about in China? We were invited by the, um, you know, one of these uh, British government trips where they try and trade mission to China in early years, a couple of years ago. We got invited six companies. We we're the smallest by a long way to go out there and we were kind of sold this thing that you know the whole of China wants you and you know you're going to be have all these people coming to sign sign you up which has proved not to be the case but we were lucky enough to speak to a really good company that um they're big they're they're owned by the I think New Oriental which is a large company there you know they're they're a big Chinese firm and we're starting to make a relationship with them and we're looking to sort of do, do some work where we support their teachers and head teachers in the educational approach so we, they can learn some of our values and integrate it into their, into their practice. So um, it's interesting because we're learning from them. So they're obviously a huge organisation. I think they employ, you know, they've got a lot of people, thousands and thousands of people working with them. And we're learning from their professionalism and I think they're learning from our educational approach. So... It's been a really nice relationship um, so far, and it's been a challenge, you know, geographically. And, yeah, and culturally. Culturally, not so much, but it's, but it has been making sure that they know, we're clear on what we each other want mm. and, what, and what it is, because their market in, in some ways is probably a little bit behind ours in, in its maturity. So it's making sure that whatever they do meets the market needs there at that their point and it's not 
too early for them or, you know, or, or it's not culturally appropriate. So we just need to make sure we get the balance right with that. Okay. But they're, they're great. They're, they've been proved a really good company to work with. So where do you find your inspiration? Going to touch now on just a few sort of personal questions. Mm. Where do you find your own inspiration? I think the idea that we're kind of lifelong learners. I mean, I certainly don't think of myself who's somebody going to sort of retire at 65, 67, whatever it is, and then I'm going to have this kind of retirement period. I see myself as you know, learning something until the day that I'm not going to wake up to learn anything else. And um, and where I kind of position that early years is fantastic because we don't learn anything more than we do between zero and six. You know, it's the biggest learning stage we're ever going to go through. From a baby that needs a mother to the six-year-old who's telling you that they don't want to go with you and they're not getting in the car and they're not going to finish you something. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not, they're not happy with you. I mean, you know, there's a huge... My daughter attempts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think that is, that is it. It's, the, it's making sure that I see that every day is an opportunity to find a better version of myself. Great. What hard thing in life are you not doing enough of? Um, probably... Probably have... I probably avoid um, some of the detail to the back end of the business. So the educational remit, I'm really clear on, and passion comes through. Passion comes through. Sometimes when I have to sit down and really work through on the numbers, um, I can feel myself kind of yeah. finding that harder to put the same level of. Um, enthusiasm into so I think if I was to work harder at that and show the same level of energy and commitment to that not for my sake but really to value the work that other people are doing in that area if you sort of mean because you have a business that has one functionality to it which is obviously education in my instance but maybe the sort of the business side of it the other side of it is equally important because without that it doesn't work yeah, holistic, 100% it's a holistic approach. So I think maybe I need to, I need to work harder at, you know, valuing that, even though, you know, it's not necessarily my strongest skill set and not where I kind of get my, where I find my biggest passion. Okay. But I, I definitely think I need to work harder on that. Okay. Thank you for being so honest. Mm. How has being an entrepreneur affected your family life? I think it's been good because... I mean, the work-life balance in regards to the fact that I am able to structure the business so I'm, I can have four weeks off in the summer and go camping with my kids in Spain and I'm on the end of the phone, but I've kind of made sure that my lifestyle fits that. And I think that ability... They, my children have seen me on diggers and dump... You know, on mini diggers, working on sites and painting and you know, fixing things and going at the weekends to feed chickens or, you know, you know, doing all the things that, you know, the grafting part of setting up a business. So they've not seen me just sitting back and enjoying the success of my business. They've seen how hard I've worked to make it a success. And I think if I look at what that gives them, that's in my family life, it gives them that ability to think that they can get out and do something. I don't care what it is. I've got, but I think they kind of, I can see by the way that they problem solve and adapt even simple things, um, that they have a feeling like, you know, 
when you collaborate and you feel strongly about something, you can something can happen. Um, and they also, I also know that they do kind of know that they want to do something that they're going to really enjoy. Yeah. But I don't want them to think that it's going to be easy, because my job has never been easy, but I still enjoy it. You know, I've never want them to think, oh, you know, just do what's easy and it's going to be. F Every day has to be fun. That's just not reality. Um, but I do think they need to know that they want to do it. Yeah. And how old are they? What's the age Fifteen, thirteen, um, ten, and seven. Okay, so the older ones are really starting to get to that point of discovery to. as to yeah. what life might hold. For they them. are, and in very, in very different ways. So, as I said, I'm, I, you know, being an educator, you'd say that maybe I have ideals to where they go and what they do, but I generally don't. I mean, the decisions I made for them, for their education, has never been based on what outcome they get. I think it's always been about whether it provides them the opportunity to work out who they are and what they can do. Yeah. And whatever that proves to be is yeah. kind of irrelevant. I kind of look back on my own life and I think, you know, I left school at 15 after my GCSEs and I kind of think, what did education do for me? Do I regret that? And mm. should I become better educated? Obviously, I went on to get professional qualifications, but I think what school did for me was it did and supportive parents, as mm. you referred to as well, which I think makes a world of difference. And I was so mm. fortunate to have that, is I did leave school knowing who I was and what I wanted and how to deal with people. Yeah. And and that's what education actually gave me. And I feel privileged that it did. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not always like that for everybody. No. Um, no, I mean, some, you know, a lot of people probably sit here listening to this thinking about their schooling days with, you know, real dread or fear or, you know, it wasn't always an enjoyable experience for people and it, and it really should have been, you know, it, it should be, it should be great. But likewise, it shouldn't be the best bit either. Yeah. <laughs> I'll pass the butter. Absolutely. <laughs> so if you had, I'm going to ask you, uh, if you had a magic wand mm -hmm. and you could go to government, what one thing would you change about the education system in the UK? Selfishly for our sector, I would probably keep children with us a little bit longer. Okay. So I don't think they should go into formal education quite as young Some as European four. Some European countries do that. Yeah, and that's quite common in the thing. And, but the biggest shift I would look for is making the primary and secondary education a more fluid and dynamic space. You know, this is just my opinion, it doesn't really mean much, but I feel like it has a whole raft of incredible teachers within it that aren't necessarily able to do what they know they need to do because the system is so is constructed in a way that doesn't allow that to happen it, it it kind of squashes them and i think it can squash the child i don't necessarily think school always there and does can do everything it want best for each child but i don't blame any of the teachers or any of the individual schools i think it's the system needs to be less clunky so if we, again, if we could not vote on education, if governments weren't paralysed by thinking that they need to have good stats to be able to get re-elected, and we allowed top university um, think tanks to decide what's best for education, you know, best on scientific knowledge and best practice around the world, then I think secondary and primary schools would be freer to do what these teachers actually want to do. Um, but we're kind of paralysed by this feeling of, well, we've got to make sure that we have good league table results for next election. And 
and so we have decisions that aren't made based on the best of education or the child it's just short-term decisions it's massively short-term and you know we look at education approaches around the world that don't take that approach they are you know, a little bit more successful than we are but I think we've got a great educational system don't get me wrong yeah. but I just feel like that this is the magic wand question. that would be the magic wand we'd allow the teachers to be freer to yeah. be more dynamic and then finally um, you're clearly a believer in personal development we talked about that very early on in the podcast so to the listeners what would you recommend they do if they want to get serious about their personal development and how do you therefore develop yourself Wow. Um, you know, thinking about my business partner, Ben, and I, um, we have very different approaches to how we go about it. And I, was, I suppose my answer to that would be there isn't a one way. You know, he's a massive, avid runner. I mean, he will go out and do one of these 50-mile, 60-mile running race things. You know, he loves it. Um, you know, it's not something I would personally choose to do. But he gets so much out of that, and that gives him his mental well-being. 100% and you can see it in him when he's training for it and he's focusing it he is, it just does it for him so I don't think it's one answer but I think it's actually that I think for me if I was going to have a go at it it would be saying having a making a conscious decision to how you can better yourself because I think most people just kind of think they can sleepwalk through life and then somehow it's going to be better for them and I just don't think that's how it works um, I think you have to consciously work out what it is you want and how you're going to make your life better. And whether that's running or whatever it, it might be, and I'm going to, not going to name anything else, you know, that's it. It's having that conscious awareness of choosing something. Brilliant, Alex. Wow, what a great note to end that podcast on. So thank you so much, Alex Shepherd. That's a pleasure. Uh, nice if people want to find out a bit about, more about you, the schools, the business, where can they go? Kidslovenature.co.uk. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much. I loved hearing Alex's story about his journey. I hope you did too. Alex's passion for education and how this has reflected into the growth of his business while staying true to his own values and sense of purpose should be motivation to us all. A key takeaway for me is Alex's overall positive and growth mindset, including that problems should be just viewed as something that you have not fixed yet and that this mindset enabled him to open a nursery in a zoo. What could you do if you adopted such a positive and growth-focused mindset? If you want access to further insightful content and inspiration, then please do go to evolvemembers.com and register for free access to the Evolve community.